Awesome. Before we go into this <coughs> third mode of shamatha, shamatha without an object, without a sign, which basically means an object, let's do a very brief review of the outcome of the earlier two methods of mindfulness of breathing. First of all, you recall that you focus first of all in this classic Theravada approach on the sensations of the breath at the nostrils, the preliminary sign, something tactile, sensory. And then eventually the acquired sign arises, something mental. You focus on that until you achieve shamatha, which is simultaneous with the emergence of the counterpart sign, which emerges from the form realm. You gain access to that, but in most cases it seems, having kind of glimpsed or encountered, then, again as Buddha Gosa says, you fall back on your bamma, like a little baby, that is not able to sustain that awareness, that ascertainment, you fall back into the bhavanga, the bhavanga. I'll translate that as the ground of becoming. Bhava means to become. Anga has various meanings. One of them is basis, ground. And so you fall back into the ground of becoming, which I have many reasons to believe and actually be totally convinced is experientially the same thing as what in the Galupa tradition is called the subtle continuum of mental consciousness and the Dzogchen tradition is called the substrate consciousness. I, I think it's overwhelming evidence. They are the same. For the yogi's perspective, different traditions, different nomenclature, same experience. Now, how is this bhavanga experience? What is it called? It's quite fascinating. When you look at the Theravada literature, again, all based on the Pali Canon, the Buddhist teachings, it's called the brightly shining mind, the prabhasa citta, or mind of clear light. It's also called the originally pure mind, from the Pali. It's said that by nature it is pure, but it's temporarily ad- covered by adventitious stains that come and go, but its nature is luminous and primarily pure. Sounds an awful lot like Rikpa, but it's not. And it's not Nirvana, and it can easily be mistaken for Nirvana, just as the substrate consciousness, as Dujum Lingma especially clarifies, the substrate consciousness can so easily be mistaken for Rikpa. Pristine awareness. Very easy. Especially if you've never heard the distinction. So you can imagine you could practice settling the mind in its natural state, slip into the substrate consciousness and say, yippee, I'm a vijadara. You know, I'm a now. Realize dokja nasta. <laughs> but where the, the practice of mindfulness, breathing, and all of the other shamatha methods within the Theravada tradition lead you is to access to the form realm and then rest in the, resting in the bhavanga. Right? This brightly shining mind. So there you are. Now, let's shift over to settling the mind in this natural state. What are we attending to? The space of the mind and whatever thoughts, images, and so forth arise within it. Well, where's a Buddhist term for this space of the mind? This, oh, now I, would not, I want to interrupt, interrupt myself because it's rather important. It's rather important. And this was suggested to me by someone. Uh, there's a woman uh, who's often sitting over here, not every morning. Her name is Heidi Sedohom. And she is an old friend here. She spent about a year living here at, uh, in, in, in the, in the Tanyapura. And so I've let her come in whenever she likes. She's a very dedicated meditator and making wonderful contributions here. So I'll let her introduce herself one of these days. But we also have happily both Nicholas, Nick, and Michelle. And so we're not just having strangers drop in and, and spying on us, writing for the National Enquirer. You know? <laughs> so when we do have people that I know you don't know, I think it's actually important that they introduce themselves. We won't have many. It's pretty much Heidi, Nick, 
Michelle, or Nick, uh, Nick, uh, Nicholas, this is an old buddy here. Uh, Nicholas, Nick, who are, who are you again? Please introduce yourself to everybody. Uh, thank you. We may as well have this. Uh, yeah, go ahead and jump in, but we'll have the, the microphone come over. Yeah. But, so we all kind of know each other, and we don't feel, you don't have a feeling strangers are just dropping in willy-nilly. Nice to meet you. It's working. Nice to meet you all. Um, my name is Nick, and I am a longtime student of Alan's. Michelle and I uh, are married, and we were in the Shamata Project. We had planned to do it for three months, and we were so taken by the experience that we ended up continuing for about 18 months um, until we discovered that we were pregnant with twins. And so a new chapter in our life began. And <clears throat> as part of that, I work here in the administration of the overall organization, um, which means we're quite busy. So I, I am able to come here only rarely, um, but uh, I'm very happy to be here today. I do have to add a little commentary there. When he says he works in administration, he's not a secretary. He's the CEO. <laughs> and uh, and Mich Michelle and I will be offering uh, interviews for people who have a burning question that they can't wait you know, for their meeting with Alan to, to find an answer to. Um, Michelle and I are, are, are far from experts, but we do have recent experience. We've made every mistake in the book. And so, you know, as a, as a sort of buddy, um, you know, we're, we're happy to, to talk. Um, one thing we would like to say is that at the end of this whole retreat, uh, for those who are interested in long-term retreat, we'll hold a longer session to discuss any questions or concerns that arise uh, about that. Uh, you know, we'll offer, we'll offer any pieces of advice that we can give. These sessions, um, we're really just focused on the practice. We don't want to, we don't want to muddle people's minds with thinking about the long term. So this is really just burning questions about the practice, um, that we'd, we'd love to help to answer. Thank you, Nick. I'm Misha. Hello. I think Nick captured it, but just to add, my role here is to bring social and emotional learning and mainly mindfulness into the school. So it's, uh, it's a joy um, to bring some of these practices to children. And one of the things I will be asking at the end is for volunteers who might be willing to meet some of the, the children, because we've had, um, over in the past, we've invited uh, some of the children, we usually try and keep it to a small group, um, to come in and to meet the retreatants. And they're prepared. They come in with burning questions like, how could you sit in silence for eight weeks? <laughs> and, and so really wonderful, I mean, spontaneous, genuine questions. And it's very meaningful for them, just the visceral experience of being in your presence. So um, at the end of the retreat, um, I will post something and I just uh, ask for some volunteers who might be willing to do that. So thank you. Thank you for having us a part of this wonderful group. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you both for introducing yourself. Hola, so. Now, having so rudely interrupted myself, <laughs> we'll come back to the main topic. And that is the space of the mind. Where, what, what's that? What's that? I mean, how, whenever I'm teaching, I should be able to translate my words back into Tibetan. Because that's where I actually feel confident that, you know, I know what I'm talking about, that it actually is Buddha Dharma. And so consider, very briefly, we're going to go a little bit over today, beyond 9.30. I think it's actually very important. And that is, we go to classic Buddhism, 
you have the five skandhas, you have the twelve, this and the... Well, one of the lists is the eighteen, the eighteen elements. Six modes of consciousness, six organs or faculties of consciousness, six domains of experience, right? The datus, the datus. So there's the datu, the domain of visual form, the domain of sound, and so forth. So we have five domains for the five physical senses. They're called datus. And then there's also the domain of mental phenomena. And what would that be called? Dharma datu. Dharma datu. Yeah, it's the domain of dharmas. And dharma doesn't mean spirituality. It means mental phenomena. Right? So what are we attending to in the settling the mind its natural state? We're attending to the relative dharma datu. Relative dharma datu. The space of the mind and its contents. The space of the mind. And what are we attending with? Well, another of the datus. The, the datu, the element of mental consciousness. There are six modes of consciousness. Mental consciousness. This is the coarse, ordinary, mental awareness. So with mental consciousness, we're attending to dharma, the relative dharma datu. Right? And then in the course of the practice, your ordinary mental consciousness dissolves into Let's now go to Dzogchen terminology. Substrate consciousness. This heavily configured mind that is not yet settled in its natural state, this mental consciousness configured by so many things, language and so many other things, now dissolves, it gets unconfigured, it gets settled, naturally settled, settled into, almost as if the coarse mind is like a snowflake, each one unique, and it dissolves into a drop of water, pretty much every drop of water looking like every other. Your, your individual mind, woman's mind, man's mind, and so forth, dissolves into a subtle continuum that is not male or female, is not even human. The bhavanga is not human. The substrate consciousness is not human. Right? And it's not configured. So as your mind, your mental consciousness, dissolves into substrate consciousness, loses its personality, so to speak, and goes from an active state to an inactive state. All of the javana, the activities of the mind, dissolve into a state of pure potentiality of the bhavanga, quiescent still, relatively still. What happens to that dharma datu, that configured space of mental awareness, that dharma datu, this relative dharma datu, this domain of phenomena, dissolves into substrate, alaya. So two disillusions. Your ordinary mind dissolves into substrate consciousness. That ordinary domain of mental experience dissolves into substrate. So along the trajectory of settling the mind in this natural state, right, you're attending to that space of the mind and its contents, attending, attending, attending. The contents diminish, diminish, diminish until there aren't any anymore. And what are you left with? When you achieve shamatha, the substrate, that's all that's left. The object was the space of the mind and whatever its contents are. But now there aren't any contents. And the space of the mind is dissolved into a more primal state, substrate. And that's all you're attending to. And then you rest, and as you just let your awareness rise up, then you realize your own substrate consciousness. Right? It looks like all roads, all roads lead to Rome. Whether you're following Theravada, whether you're following Following and visualizing a Buddha image, classic Mayana practice. This is straight from a Sangha now. Achieve shamatha on a generated Buddha image, a visualized Buddha image. You achieve shamatha, you get the signs on the top of the head and all the shifts of the energy and the bliss and all of that. And then it subsides and what do you do? Now that you have this radiantly clear, ever so vivid image of the Buddha, three-dimensional, as lifelike, as if you're seeing with your eyes or as if you're dreaming and seeing the Buddha in a dream, now what do you do? 
Asanga says, release the image. It's done its work. And now where are you, now that you've released the image, where are you now? Brightly shining mind. Substrate consciousness. Right? And now, all of the other shamatha methods all have a sign. They have an object. Whether it's like a point-like object of the tactile sensations of the breath, a point-like object as in the acquired sign, could even be a little ray or orb of light, point-like, atomic light, atom-like. And then we have many, many objects like that, focusing on a bindu, an orb of light at the heart, and so forth and so on. Many, many kind of point-like objects for the practice of shamatha. But when we come to settling the mind in its natural state, we're not focusing on a point, are we? We are focusing on a field, a domain, and whatever arises within that domain, right? So we're not latching onto any one thought and that and that and that. We're not latching onto, lunging and grasping onto. Oh, with the awareness like space, whatever arises in the field, we simply attend to it without the clinging and with the grasping. And so now, rather than focusing on a point or like an atom, we're focusing on a field. And whatever arises in the field. And when nothing's arising in the field, you're still single-pointedly focused on the field. And you achieve shamatha, and what appears to you when you've achieved shamatha is the substrate, and then you're aware, oh, with what am I aware of the substrate? Ah, welcome home, substrate consciousness. Well, in this final method, that it seems the Buddha taught, and he said this is the most profound of all shamatha practices, awareness of awareness, in Pali, vinyana, vinyana kasina, focusing on consciousness itself, the most profound. In this practice, you cut out the middleman, you don't get to shamatha, you don't get to the substrate consciousness by way of an object, by way of, by way of. You, you get to the substrate consciousness directly by releasing all attention to all appearances and all objects and letting your awareness rest in its own nature. So when you achieve shamatha, by way of shamatha without a sign, without an object, without a support, awareness of awareness, all of those being synonymous, when you come to the end of the road in this practice, then what are you aware of? Well, you are attending to the luminous, cognizant aspects of consciousness itself, resting in consciousness, and so now mental awareness is inverted right in upon itself, and like like a burning ember put on top of a snowbank, it just melts right through, right down to the bottom. It melts right through all the configurations of consciousness until all that's left is mental consciousness has dissolved into substrate consciousness. And you're still at the same place. This brightly shining mind, primordially pure, but relative, relative, right? Because it's just a substrate, just a substrate consciousness. And if you just dwell there, thinking you're an arhat, or a vidyadara, or an arya bodhisattva, you're fundamentally mistaken, and you are not going anywhere. And you really haven't gotten anywhere. If that's it, then as Tujomlinga says, you have not moved one inch towards enlightenment. Now, if you've achieved there with a larger vision to take that extraordinary suppleness, the stillness, the clarity of your awareness and apply that to Vipassana, apply that to Bodhicitta, and then it's magnificent. It's not only magnificent, it's indispensable. So you see how it can be on the one hand so trivial. You may as well just, you know, I don't know, just electrically, electrically stimulate with a microelectrode the pleasure center in your brain. And... <coughs> for four hours, and then have a glass of milk and poop, and then... <laughs> it's really not much more meaningful than that, you know. 
just to achieve shamatha by itself with no larger picture, no deeper motivation. It's just hitting a pleasure center. But it's a bit more interesting than that because this is not stimulus-driven. That is, the electrode is mm, the bliss from shamatha is not stimulus-driven. You're tapping into a bliss that is of the very nature of consciousness itself. It's like a faint reflection of the immutable bliss that is rooted in and stems from primordial consciousness, rikpa, pristine awareness. It's not coming from any other source. So, final point. And that is, if we were practicing, focusing on the generated image of the Buddha, visualized image, you would just expect to have a really poor image, unless you just are one of those rare people that can visualize very well. But you can imagine, you can try doing it right now. Okay, generate, there's an image of the Buddha. Bring it up to mind. Take five seconds. There's the image, generate it. Pretty crappy, huh? I mean, if you got a really still, stable, clear, that was like a photo, a snapshot of that Buddha image, maybe you should follow that technique. But for most of it, it kind of wavers in and out, it's vague, and so forth and so on. So don't expect much. You know, the mind is just achieving stage one out of nine. And likewise, when we first settle the mind in this natural state, don't expect to be expert at it. Expect to be carried away by most of the thoughts, and when you're not, being spaced out. That's why we practice, <laughs> you know. We're not, if we could start out with expertise, then we, we would just start out and finish at the same time. And likewise for awareness of awareness. It is ever so easy to have too high an expectation of what it'll be like. So we're about to do the practice. And you might think, okay, I'm ready for a, a brightly shining mind, radiantly pure, primordially pure. Um, that's it. <laughs> that's all you got. I couldn't be doing it right. I probably should try harder. Oh, I'm seeing violet. Maybe that's it. You know. Don't try harder. Be satisfied with just being aware that you're aware. Be satisfied. And then like that coal burning through a snowbank, just rest there. This is from Genlam Rimba, extraordinary yogi that I was able to live with in the same cottage for a year. He said, start out, don't expect too much. But just be patient and rest there in that ongoing flow of knowing of knowing. And gradually, the luminous and cognizant aspects of consciousness will become more and more evident. But don't expect it in the beginning. Don't expect too much. And don't assume you're doing it incorrectly because you're not having some great breakthrough into the substrate consciousness. Okay? So that's enough. Time's running out quickly. Let's find a comfortable position for shamatha without a sign. And the, we'll have four days for this. And the sequence of the practice is taken directly from one of the earth treasures, the earth dharma of Padmasambhava, a text that I translated called Natural Liberation. I'm taking it directly from him. So these teachings are the teachings of Padmasambhava. And this is in a chapter on a whole sequence of shamatha methods, going from really coarse, like looking at a stone, a flower, or a stick, a visual object, which is dead easy, to more and more subtle, until finally he comes to this one. And when he comes to this one, he said, okay, here it is. Now practice this until you achieve shamatha, until your mind has settled in its natural state and do not be introduced to rikpa prematurely. But first settle your mind in its natural state and then be introduced to Dzogchen. Otherwise, all of the teachings of Dzogchen can just turn into an object of intellect. You can reify it and then just fall into dogmatism. So he had a clear sequence in mind. <laughs>
Chief Shamata by way of this, and then move on to Vipassana. After that comes Dzogchen, Dream Yoga, things like that. So we, we start. We always start in the same way, an inviting way, a soothing and gentle way. By settling the body in its natural state, the respiration in its natural rhythm, and for a little while settle your mind, calm the mind by way of mindfulness of breathing. Now let your eyes be open, evenly resting your gaze, your awareness, in the space in front of you, but without taking anything as an object, 
without focusing on anything. Just be aware in the present moment without being distracted or carried away by any thought or sensory image. Resting your awareness without distraction or without grasping onto anything, sensory or mental. Just be present. Appearances arise, of course, sensory and mental, but don't deliberately give any attention to them. Just for a little while, rest with no object whatsoever, not deliberately focusing your attention on anything. And now do something. Deliberately withdraw your attention from all appearances in virtual awareness, right in upon the experience of being aware. Do you know whether you're conscious or not? Would you know whether you are conscious, even if no appearances were arising, as in a perfect sensory deprivation tank with your mind quiet? Focus in on that unelaborated, immediate experience of being aware, and rest in that knowing of knowing.
and virtue awareness in upon itself, in upon that immediate experience of the sheer luminosity, the sheer brightness, the wakefulness of your awareness and the cognizance of being aware. In virtue awareness in upon itself and then utterly release your awareness into space with no object, not even space itself. Then invert again, withdraw from all appearances, even the appearance of space, withdraw your awareness in upon itself, into the knowing of knowing, arousing and focusing your attention. Then utterly release your awareness into non-objectivity. Invert and release. Invert and release. And throughout this rhythm, this undulation, whenever any thought or image arises, release it instantly with no interest whatsoever. To the best of your ability, maintain an ongoing flow of non-conceptual awareness. And throughout the inversion and the release, Gently sustain an ongoing flow of awareness of awareness.
you are new to this practice, find it quite challenging, you may, as a preliminary exercise, conjoin the inversion and the release of your attention with the in and out breath, maintaining just a peripheral awareness of the in and out flow of the breath as the breath flows in effortlessly. Invert your awareness in upon itself, withdrawing from all appearances. And as the breath flows out, release your awareness out beyond all appearances. Into space with no object. Invert and release, invert and release. This is a core instruction of the Dzogchen approach to shamatha.
we are settling the mind in its natural state, especially in the early phases, it's easiest to be carried away by thoughts, by excitation. In this practice, it's easiest to fall into laxity, into a state of unknowing, and a loss of clarity, just sitting here with a blank mind. That would turn this practice into an exercise of unawareness, not worth doing. So it is imperative in this practice, while withdrawing your interest and your attention from all appearances and all objects of the mind, to maintain a flow of knowing. And what you are knowing is being aware. Awareness is knowing itself. As soon as you see that your attention has been carried away, that you fall into into excitation, let the response be the same as before. First of all, loosen up, relax. Release whatever captivated your attention. And then return your awareness, letting it rest in its own place, knowing itself.
Lasso, as with the other two practices. In between sessions, the breath continues to flow in and out, inviting you to tangle, inviting you to continue practicing. The mind goes on, thoughts, images, and so forth goes on in between sessions, inviting you to settle the mind in the natural state. And in between sessions, the flow of awareness, of mental awareness, is always there, inviting you not to stray from the practice. So, to the best of your ability, maintain continuity. Now we're touching into all three of the methods. And so what it strongly encourages, of your choice, and of course you may choose different objects at different times, but in between sessions as much as you can. Number one, don't fall back into the rut of OCDD, which is really, you know, going backwards. In between sessions, maintain a peripheral awareness of the breathing, or of the mind, or of awareness. Keep in touch. Keep in touch with the practice. That will really empower the whole practice. So that when you go into your next formal session, it will be smooth. Like one of those seals. It slips across, slips across the ice until it hits the pole, hits the, the water. Yeah. No friction. Okay? Good. I'll see you a bit later.